If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm your host, Jacob Winograd. So today's episode is going to focus a little bit more on my personal argument for why I am anti-war, but also why I think Christians need to be anti-war. And I don't, I don't have much of an introduction other than that. I have a lot that I want to say. Probably the first three quarters, I actually, because I want to make sure I say what I really want to say, I have written out, but the last quarter, I'm going to go a little bit off the cuff because I think it's important to some of this to come from my heart. And Sometimes it's hard to write those things down. They need to come more just naturally. But, you know, the context of this and why I decided to do this, I'm recording this after this happened, October 7th, 2023, Hamas launched a surprise attack on the nation state of Israel. And then the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, declared that the country is now at war and they've since cut off electricity and utilities to Gaza, planning a ground invasion at the time of when I'm recording this. You know, the problem is no matter when I record this, by the time it airs, some things I'm saying right now have probably changed or developed more. But, you know, there is an ongoing conflict, and that is what's sparking this episode. You know, as this unfolds, the media, the politicians are out there making proclamations of how the U.S. must support Israel. Others point to the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians in Gaza and say that Israel deserved this, or at least that they brought this on themselves. The term that libertarians are using is the term blowback to describe what is going on here. And it's not even a matter of saying that Israel deserves this. The issue is dividing nations, governments, and individuals. And that is where this all gets messy. And none of the innocent people on either side deserve to die. But there is blowback for the actions of governments, the actions of militaries, and that is what libertarians often speak to. Now, the truth of this exact conflict, I will be diving into soon. I have Kyle Anzalone, who I've had on the show before. I interviewed him at Freedom Fest. He is a writer, contributor, podcaster over at the Libertarian Institute. And he'll be coming on the show soon to discuss the history and current political drives and motivations at play in this conflict between Israel and Hamas. But before we even go there, I think we need to take the time to make some things clear. So I am anti-war. That probably is obvious at this point, if you've listened to the show for a while, or you know, even if you tuned in, the intro kind of makes that obvious. The title of this episode probably makes that obvious. If you are a fellow anti-war Christian or libertarian, this probably doesn't surprise you, and some of this might be preaching to the choir. I don't think it's wrong to preach to the choir. The choir needs preached to, after all. 
However, there are probably a number of you who listen to me or who are new to this show and don't know what I mean by anti-war or why I am that. I'd imagine that some people hear that term and might take some sort of offense to it. After all, the American Revolution was a war to fight for independence. World War II was a war fought to defeat the Nazis and the Holocaust. People might concede that not all wars are noble, but that enough are noble or good or necessary that to be anti-war means being forward in justice or at least being naive. Now, others might hear that term and agree with it, and they might even themselves think that they are anti-war, but they don't say it with the same weight or scope or meaning that I and others use it in. Sure, I would imagine that lots of people are anti-war in the sense that they would prefer peace to war, and even necessary wars cost lives. So the norm, the preference that most reasonable sane people would have is to be against war, you know, in that sort of like generic preferential sense. Only psychopaths or violent, deranged people love war or want war. But when I use the term, I don't mean that in expressing some casual preference. I'm saying, to put it as plainly as possible, that I think war is immoral. When I say I am anti-war, I mean war should be avoided at all cost, or almost any cost at least. And for the sake of nuance, you know, I have to throw some bones out there to those who are maybe scratching their heads at my statements. And I want to make it clear what I'm not saying. I am not making a pacifist argument. Now, I know some of the listeners of my show are pacifists, and I respect your positions. I would say, I've said in the past that I'm probably one step removed from pacifism, but I am not a pacifist at the end of the day. I believe in the right to self-defense. That should always be weighed against the teaching to turn the other cheek. And where that line is drawn isn't 100% clear. But I think we can all agree that if someone is being threatened with violence, actions to protect that person are generally permissible. With principles of reciprocity and sound evidence, innocent till proven guilty, etc., you know, that that should come into mind as well. And I'm also not saying that a group of people being invaded by an outside force don't have a right to band together to defend themselves. In fact, the idea of a just war theory isn't something that I would disagree with on paper. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, let me define it in simple terms. Just war theory states that war is morally just if there is just cause and is used as a last resort after all other options have been exhausted. There are some other considerations sometimes included, but I think those two are the most important and what I'm going to focus on later in the episode. So if I agree with just war theory, why am I describing myself as anti-war? Well, to put it simply, I think if we examine wars going on today and throughout history, most, if not all, wars and military conflicts fail to measure up to those two standards that I just listed. So let's dive into this a little bit more. What does it mean to exhaust all other options? And what is just cause? Certainly many wars that were fought over territory disputes or resources or just power struggles would not be understood to fit the description of having just cause. Wars such as World War I would fail because that war was due to entangling alliances. But what about wars that we commonly view as just? The Civil War, World War II, the Revolutionary War, well, the disadvantage here is that it would take me hours to go into this 
in full detail for each one of these wars and others that people could bring up. But suffice to say that I think there are strong arguments to be made that all of these wars were preventable, and not all options of peaceful resolution were exhausted. So let me share some interesting facts about each of these three wars, and this is just a teaser. Maybe future episodes, I'll go into more detail on each of these wars separately, and other people have done that as well. And there's articles that I could reference as well. But I'm going to do a teaser for what my cases would be for these three wars. So it's commonly agreed that World War II was a result of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I. The terms of this treaty were so harsh on Germany that they created the circumstances that allowed for Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to rise to power. So that war would have been easily avoided had the other nations involved acted differently. Furthermore, there were many opportunities to deal with the Nazi problem sooner without such wide-scale violence. And if America and Europe had been more welcoming to Jewish immigrants, perhaps they would have saved numerous lives as well. There's also evidence that America provoked Japan to attack Pearl Harbor in terms of it wasn't just a war against the Nazis, it was a war against Japan as well. Certainly, once the Nazis started expanding and invaded other countries, I would uphold the rights of those people to defend themselves. But I would argue that at best, historical commentators can only paint this war as just by truncating the antecedents. What I mean by that is that they're acting, and this is, I think, a common thing that people do with any war, any military conflict. And, you know, I think that's what we see happening today, even with Israel and Palestine. History didn't begin October 7th, 2023, in that conflict between Israel and Hamas. When 9-11 happened, Harry Brown, a legendary figure within the libertarian movement and party, wrote an article the day after 9-11, said, when will we learn? talking about how history didn't begin 9-11, that this wasn't a completely unprovoked attack. And you can go and look up the declarations of war that bin Laden made against America and see that there's a lot of American action that sowed the seeds of hatred and violence that led to 9-11. Not least of all being the sanctions that the Bill Clinton administration enforced on Iraq, which led to 500,000 dead Iraqi children, and so many other instances of American foreign policy. So, yes, we have to be careful about those who would truncate the antecedents. Going back to World War II, what is often portrayed as the most just war that America has fought in had to be fought because of greed, desire for revenge, and the short-sightedness of other nations involved including the U.S., in terms of what they did at the end of World War I. To put it another way, best we have a war that could be construed as having some noble ends, but it was only made possible through reckless leadership, a good that occurred only after many wrongs were committed. Nations and governments committed to peace would have never created the circumstances of World War II in the first place. Many historical commentators and scholars have made the argument that peace could have been achieved and the Nazis could have been defeated without American involvement or without war at all. But those are, again, arguments that would depend upon unpacking a lot of history and data and would be best left to be discussed on a different episode in the future. But I'll summarize it by saying this. I mentioned earlier the idea of blowback. I would argue that World War II is blowback for World War I. 
And I would also argue that really the last 70 years of what I would call American imperialism, the many wars in the Middle East, the current conflict between Israel and Palestine, in many ways, these are blowback for World War II. And so, yes, the Nazis were evil. And yes, the Holocaust was horrible. And justice being performed on those evil people is certainly a good thing. But the more we study the history, the more we would look at World War II and see that it's not as simple as good guys versus bad guys. That in a lot of ways, it was bad guys versus even worse bad guys. And that there weren't exactly just humanitarian noble things at play. And again, this wasn't the result of governments doing everything they could to pursue peace. To briefly touch on the American Revolution and the Civil War, there are two things I would briefly mention. And again, I'm leaving a lot out for the sake of time. It's interesting to note that the American Revolution was essentially an act of secession, a declaration of independence. The nation that would become known as the United States of America seceded from the rule of another country. And the country that seceded had a sizable population of people who either owned slaves or condoned the slave trade, or at least the idea of owning slaves, even if they didn't support the slave trade, the international slave trade and whatnot. We are taught that this war, the American Revolution, was just, but then taught that about a century later, another coalition of states who wanted to declare independence from another nation was unjust because they practiced slavery. So right there, I think we have a little bit of a contradiction because yes, obviously slavery was a major factor in the Civil War, but it's also historically illiterate to say that it was the only factor I would also point out that the level of taxation and government, the level of government restriction of natural rights that the colonists experienced, in many ways seems insignificant to the taxation and giant bureaucratic regulatory apparatus that is the government we live under today. Perhaps the British were slow to react to the grievances of the colonists. And I would certainly condemn many of the practices of the British government but I would suggest that there is a very Americanized view of that story that is taught in our public schools. An objective look at the historical data would show that there was not an insignificant number of colonists who were happy under British rule, as well as many more who were completely indifferent to it. It becomes harder the more that one studies history to say that all options of peace were exhausted. And certainly the same can be said of the Civil War. And Although the Civil War, again, is commonly justified as being fought to end slavery, in truth, in Europe and other countries, slavery was abolished without war. So to kind of summarize that, we had two groups of people who wanted to declare their sovereignty and independence from another group of people. Now, that's something that I ultimately support as a libertarian. I believe in the right to self-determination. And I don't think that one group of people ought be forced to be under the same rule or part of the same nation of another group of people against their will. However, the means by which they do that can be called into question. And although, you know, I would support the idea of the 13 colonies declaring independence and of the southern states declaring independence, and yes, there are many nuanced ways that we can look at this. Some people will say that the 
Americans just declared independence, and then the aggressors were really the British who refused to give it to them. But then, all right, what happened in the Civil War? A group of people declared independence, and then the northern government, Washington, D.C., Lincoln, refused to give it to them. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that it's hard to really justify both these wars because they have a lot more in common than they do different. And to use the slavery argument as a justification for the Civil War, well, again, that doesn't really make sense than when you justify the Revolutionary War because there, again, you have a nation declaring independence who practiced slavery. Maybe they weren't fighting to defend their right to have slavery, but again, there's a lot of people who lived in the South who didn't own slaves, didn't even care about slavery. That's not the reason they fought. They fought because they wanted to retain their local community, their local state's autonomy. And so I have to ask myself, looking back throughout history, and I think Christians need to ask themselves, slavery is obviously a great evil, and independence, the right to self-autonomy, is, is something that I value. But were these conflicts at the point where war was the only option? Because other nations did eventually gain independence from the rule of the British without a war. And slavery was abolished in many other places without war. So I would ask, were all options of peace exhausted in these circumstances? Again, maybe you won't come away convinced, but at the very least, you know, even if you don't agree with my position that all wars generally fall short of that criteria, the point that there's even an argument that can be made about these three wars that are often touted as the most moral wars that America has fought in shows that if these, even at best, barely make the mark, then a lot of other ones certainly would have to miss it by a wide margin. Now we have to focus on just cause. And I think the issue here is that the, for the average person, the issue will be that I advocate for a much higher standard of just cause than most. And that is for two reasons. First, we might at times just disagree over the certain ends that are being discussed and whether those are desirable. I don't think fighting wars to advance American interests or defend democracy abroad are ends worth pursuing. So that's kind of the first brief reason. The second reason is what's really important, though. I have a high standard of what a just cause would be because I think most people haven't fully absorbed the horror of war and the tremendous cost that war comes with. And this is where I'm going to go off script because I think it's just better for me to speak from the heart on this. The only thing I have prepared is there's a quote that people have shared around, and I forget who, who made this quote, but it goes like this. Someone has asked, what is worse, war or hell? And someone says, war. I'm like, why is that? Well, war is hell, but in hell, the only people who are suffering, the only people who are in hell are the people who deserve it. Whereas in war, the people who are in hell and suffering are more often than not those who do not deserve it. And that's really at the crux of why I'm anti-war with, with all the other reasons I gave about like, you know, skepticism of the idea that there's good causes, that people are being critical, that all options of peace are exhausted. The reasons why those are important and that I 
hold those two standards to such a high degree, have a really high threshold on them, is because war is so destructive. And it's not always good guys versus bad guys. It's bad guys versus other bad guys. And maybe one bad guy is worse than the other. But they're both killing innocents on both sides. And we see this in, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, 9-11 was a terrible tragedy. Thousands of American lives lost and then more American lives lost in the wars that followed. But, you know, history didn't begin September 11th, 2001. If you look at the history of American foreign policy in the decades following World War II and leading up to that, there was so much interference by the American government and intelligence agencies in the Middle East, whether it was displacing governments and installing new leaders, giving different insurgency groups weapons to fight against you know, Russia, which they then turned and used against us, and supporting tyrannical regimes just to then turn on them and install other tyrannical leaders, giving weapons to nations that they would use against their civilian populations or against other countries, civilian populations, or devastating blockades like the one I mentioned earlier that was done in the 90s. That, and you can look this quote up online. Look up Madeleine Albright, 500,000 dead Iraqi children. Run away from this when they're questioned on this. This happened. It's not some kind of conspiracy theory. Our government enacted a blockade on the country of Iraq that led to the mass starvation and death of over 500,000 Iraqis. Children. It's horrible. That's just a blockade. War is not just people, I mean, people, wars often come with blockades. And so that's destructive. And then when bombs are being dropped, innocent people get caught up in the crossfire. And as a Christian, we're told, Jesus says, that what you do to the least of these, you've done unto me. When you fed me, when you gave me shelter, when I thirsty and you gave me something to drink. But what our American foreign policy is, most wars are, is doing unto the least of these the exact opposite of those things. It's we're starving you. We're putting you out into the cold. Sometimes we're just outright blowing you to bits. There was a very controversial tweet that like, the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire put out the past year or so. And it was mocking John McCain. And specifically, it was mocking Meghan McCain mourning over the casket of, of her father, John McCain, when he had passed. And people were like, how can you mock a daughter grieving over the death of her father? And yeah, that does seem like something. How can you not have compassion for a daughter grieving her father? And I would just, but you know what? If that is your reaction to that, all right, John McCain supported all of these wars and interventions that I just talked about and even more that I haven't brought up. How many children grieved over their dead parents' bodies because of what John McCain did, because of what American foreign policy did? Or vice versa, how many parents had to watch the blown up, burnt to bit remains of their children because of what we did? How many families were just completely blown up in an instant because of what we did? Whether it was Obama's drone strikes in Syria, whether it was us giving weapons and missiles to Saudi Arabia to use in what was essentially a genocide in Yemen. I'm anti-war because I know what war does because I've looked at it and it's horrible. And yes, we want to hold the people who did that responsible, right? 
We look at what Hamas has done to innocent Israelis and we want justice, but we can't respond to evil people killing innocent people by then justifying in our actions the killing of innocent people. Maybe you can try to justify that, but you, you sure cannot justify that by anything that Jesus said. Yes, there were wars in the Old Testament, and I'm not going to get into that there because I have a whole episode on why well, I talked with Gregory Baus, host of the Reformed Libertarians podcast. I'll have it in the show notes. It's entitled, Does the Conquest of Canaan Conflict with Anarchism or something to that effect? The short answer is that was an eschatological intrusion, that this was a short moment in history that was specific to the Mosaic Covenant. And we, listen, there are things that God can do that we can't. God can know what is best and he can judge an entire people should be gone to war with and destroyed. Although it's important to note that the Israelites really never did wipe out every single person. But the point is, that was a specific people at a specific time. was in a universal decree. And I would argue that chapter has been closed. And part of why that chapter was even open in the first place was A, to point us to our need for a savior. And B, to show that war doesn't solve anything. The Israelites didn't create peace through war. They didn't conquer Canaan and then usher in a golden age. I mean, God flooded the earth once and killed all the evil people. And then sin creeps back in. As long as there is another will in this world that is free to disobey God, there will be sin. No amount of violence solves that. And the heart of the gospel is not using violence to solve our problems. The heart of the gospel is the cross. It's God coming down, taking human form, the son of God coming down and dying for our sins. The Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah because he wasn't a political figure. He wasn't a warlord coming to fight another war. No, we don't struggle against flesh and blood and we struggle against darkness, spiritualities. So that is why I'm anti-war. I'm anti-war because I can't point to any time that a war has been fought and the results of that war made you look back at all the innocent lives lost, all the destruction that it brought and the blowback, the inevitable blowback that every war brings because it's just a cycle of violence. I can never look at that and go, yeah, that was worth it. I can't be Madeline Albright and go, yeah, 500,000. She was literally asked, was it worth it? 500,000 dead Iraqi children, was it worth it? And she said, yes, I can't do that. And I don't think any Christian in good conscience can do that. I don't think any follower of Christ, not my savior, I can't look to the life of my savior and say that anyone who follows him, who's made him their king, can then look at any group of people killing innocent people and saying, yeah, that's justified, that's worth it. Again, this is not about justifying violence or terrorism. What Hamas did was terrible. But you know what? What the Israeli government has done to the Palestinians is also terrible. What America has done to Arabs across the Middle East has been terrible. And 9-11 was terrible. We cannot overcome evil with evil. We cannot kill innocent lives in response to innocent lives being taken. And that is what war is. And I'm anti-war because I do not believe in the capacity for any human, for any human kingdom to engage in war perfectly where no innocents are lost, where their intentions are 100% pure and unbiased and there's no blowback afterwards. That's not possible. 
the only way to solve these problems is to pursue justice by making peace the goal, which means protecting the innocent, not sacrificing them, not counting them as just collateral damage. So over the coming weeks, we're going more into specifics with a lot of these topics. Not every episode is going to be about it, but a lot of them are going to be, and it's important. It's what it says in the intro, that this, this podcast is a, what I pray for it to be, I'm not a prophet like Samuel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. There's no ego in me when I say this. I hope that God can use this podcast and use my voice as a prophetic voice against war and empire. And it's not prophecy in the sense of like I'm predicting the future. It's just me humbly going to the Bible and trying to ask my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to look at it and let's follow it. We cannot be light and salt while we're dropping bombs on people. We cannot be light and salt while we're contributing to the starvation of children and families across the world. We can't call America God's chosen nation or the city on the hill while we participate in such barbarism and evil. It's just not possible. And that is, that is a deep conviction that I hold. And that is what drives me. And that is why I'm anti-war. And that will continue to be a focus of this podcast. And I hope I can continue to make that case. I hope that what I am saying makes you curious to look into this stuff. And don't just listen to me. Go to antiwar.com. Listen to people at the Libertarian Institute. Look up what people are saying about all these conflicts. Listen to Dave Smith. Listen to Scott Horton. Listen to Leah McCollum. Listen to Kyle Anzalone. Listen to Connor Freeman. So many different people that I could list, and I'll probably have links to stuff in the show notes. You know, I have books I could recommend too on all these different subjects. Listen, while we live in this world, I'll end on this. While we live in this world, we will have trouble. And I'm under no illusion that we will ever live in a society without war until Jesus comes. That is part of his messianic mission is that he will bring peace to the nations. But you know what? Even though it is going to take Jesus coming to bring peace to the nations, we're the body of Christ. What should we be advocating for? What should we be pushing towards? What should our prayer be? What should we be preaching? It can't be war. It has to be peace. I talked about this in my Christmas episode last year. The hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our prince of peace. We can't sing that and be pro-war. We can't read the things in the Bible about Jesus and be pro-war. I'll end here with Isaiah 11 to read some scripture. And again, this is pointing to Jesus. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and fatling together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and the young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. 
they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It'll come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria to Egypt, to Pathras and Cush, from Elam to Shinar, from Hamath to the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jesus will bring peace. Jesus will unite the nations. And again, that's the future. We're supposed to be ambassadors of that future, ambassadors of that kingdom. And so our voice should be against war and it should be in the defense of the innocent on both sides. Our national identities matter not in comparison to our identity in Christ. There is no male, no female, no free, no slave, no Jew, no Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. Listen, there are Christians on both sides of these conflicts, even. There are Christians living in Palestine. Listen, I expect this from the world, but my Christian brothers and sisters, we have been called to be set apart from the world. We have called to walk a different path. We can't just echo what the world says and put Christian clothing on it. This is not our home. We are to be born again. And I don't know how we can be born again and be advocates for violence and mass slaughter. That is what war is. So I will end on that note. Thank you for listening to this episode. Again, I got a lot of good content coming up here. We've been bi-weekly for a while because of just switch back and forth depending on how busy I am. But we'll be going back to weekly here in a little bit through the remainder of this year. I got a lot of conversations coming up that I'm excited to do and to uh, give to you guys. I have conversations with Greg Bausch. We're going to be revisiting Romans 13. I have conversations with Jose Galassan. I have conversations with my friend James Jenneman. I have Kyle Anzalone coming on to talk more about the conflict in Israel. And I have invitations sent out to others to keep us informed about what's going on in the world. And I think that's important. We need to stay informed as Christians so that our prayers can be specific for the people who are in need of God's deliverance and of God's grace. It's one thing to pray a generic prayer of peace. It's another thing to know what's going on and for Christians to unite and pray specific prayers for specific people and circumstances. And so that is all for today's episode. We'll be back again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.